Trumanitarian. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. Sexual reproductive health services is an incredibly important and at times quite controversial issue, both in development and humanitarian settings. IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, is one of the main networks pushing this agenda forward. And this week, my guest is Robin Dristel, the Deputy Director for Humanitarian Programs for IPPF. She tells uh, both a new and quite familiar story about the challenges and the priorities for the actors pushing for better access to critical services. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting and surprising was that, in a sense, I think I overestimated how far we have gotten on this issue. It remains a massive challenge for the humanitarian sector to ensure that we put the spotlight on reproductive health in our operations, and we see that as a truly life-saving intervention alongside the other sectors. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and if you do, please don't forget to like us and follow us, review us, and all of that. And as always, we're happy to hear from you with feedback and ideas for new episodes. You can reach us on info at truemanitarian.org. Enjoy the conversation. Robin Drysdale, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you, Lars. Nice to be here. And I think we have to have full disclosure. It's the third time that we try to actually record this uh, this interview. The, the gods of internet have not been on our side so far, but we have been praying heavily this morning to them. So let's hope that everything will be okay. Robin, you're the you're the deputy director for humanitarian programs in the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And, and maybe let's begin with the, the, the Federation, the IPPF. I have to admit that I wasn't intimately familiar with the work of IPPF um, before we, we got in touch and agreed to do this, this episode. I knew some of your members, but I actually wasn't too familiar with the, with the Federation. Robin, can, can you give us a quick, uh, just give a quick overview of what, what is IPPF? Thanks, Lars. So IPPF um, is an international federation of sexual reproductive health and rights organisations, which are located across uh, more than 170 countries in the world. Um, We're a global network of local organisations. And um, one of the key things about the IPPF uh, global network is that all our member associations are local organisations. They're local non-government organisations that do sexual reproductive health and rights at their country level, but we're part of a global network. As we like to say, we're um, locally owned and globally connected. And that makes us quite unique, especially in terms of sexual reproductive health in crisis, because we are there, we are in the countries before, during and after a crisis. Uh, and also the vulnerable populations that we serve at country level, eight out of ten of the clients that our member associations see are classified as poor or vulnerable or marginalised in some way within their communities. So maybe the reason that IPPF is not um, doesn't have that high a profile is that really it's the members that take the, the front row and, and those are the organisations that we engage with when we we meet in the field. Is that fair to say? 
Absolutely. And um, we have heard the saying that we are the largest organisation in the world that no one's ever heard of, <laughs> which is perhaps not the best state to be. But I think it is that um, because we're a federation and it, it is very much about the work our member associations do. So it, it, they are the ones working at the field. They are the local organisations that are doing the work and our role uh, becomes more of a technical support and a resource mobiliser. But maybe you should have a word with your communications department. Very good point. <laughs> uh, but um, hopefully hopefully um, that is slowly changing. But yes, our communications department should perhaps do some more work. <laughs> All right, on a more serious note, uh, obviously the, the need for, for sexual reproductive uh, health services is, not, is both a issue that expands the development and, and the humanitarian Uh, field. Uh, Robin, you, you work predominantly with the humanitarian side of things. How is that different from your development work? What What's specific to sexual reproductive health services in an emergency? What What are the main challenges? How do you engage with the with the humanitarian architecture? What, what What's it like? Uh, so it is, it's really, um, it's about uh, really honing down the attention of what we do in an emergency because it really becomes about critical life-saving uh, activities or humanitarian actions. So during re- uh, stable times, we would, um, our member associations deliver a whole raft of services for sexual and reproductive health. We don't deliver those during an emergency, during a crisis. We don't deliver all of them. We really narrow it down to the minimum initial services package or the MISP as it's called globally, which is a a globally recognised minimum standard of services which are life-saving for uh, sexual reproductive health, maternal health. So that is about really about saving lives. So Really, the work in the humanitarian program um, is, of course, about supporting member associations to respond effectively with quality services during a crisis, but it is also about preparing them to do that. So a lot of our work is really in preparedness. Um, So it is the time before crises, and, of course, you never know when crises is going to set, so you could also say that we're always in preparedness phase. And that's where the nexus between humanitarian work and development work is really critical um, because that preparedness involves both capacity strengthening um, and and doing things such as simulation exercises at country level. Um, it involves pre-positioning of supplies ready to have a grab-and-go clinic, if you will, to go to the field. Um, and it requires partnerships at country level. So you mentioned the uh, cluster system. So our member associations are engaged with uh, their national coordination mechanisms very closely, and in particular they engage with the health clusters or equivalents at country level and also the protection clusters and gender-based violence subclusters. The sexual reproductive rights it can be a really sensitive issue both in terms of, of access to services, various services, but also uh, the whole LGBTQ plus agenda. And civil society in some of the countries we operate in uh, tend to be fairly conservative, at least parts of it, uh, in this area. How how do you deal with with that situation that maybe the, the whole 
LGBTQ plus agenda is really not flavor of the month in some of the countries where where you operate. How how do your partners deal with that? How do you as a federation deal with that diversity of opinions on, on that issue, for example? Yes, yeah, so, um, in some countries it is a challenge, absolutely. Um, I think part of the beauty, though, of our member associations is that they are local organisations. And so they're engaged at local level and have long-standing relationships with communities um, and also other local organisations, which include um, networks of people who are of diverse sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so they, because they understand the local context, uh, they uh, also have ideas around how best to approach some of these issues and to push forward the rights, for example, and support the rights of uh, those who are most marginalised in their communities. Uh, it's not always easy, and absolutely it is a challenge um, in some countries in particular, but really our work is all about supporting the most vulnerable in, in communities and the absolute right that people have to sexual reproductive health, regardless of their ability or disability, their gender identity, their sexual orientation. Uh, so I think the context-appropriate approach that our member associations are able to take because of those partnerships, because of understanding the local culture, uh, because they're part of it, and also because of um, understanding you know, religion and knowing who the gatekeepers are at local level who are going to help and assist and um, how to get around some of those barriers uh, that exist within the countries. We have previously on this podcast had uh, 42 Degrees, uh, a great organization working with these issues uh, in, in the Pacific also, and it was really interesting to hear, hear them talk about uh, their work. I guess they also somehow relate to, to the work you do. Absolutely, and we have great networks um, that we work with in the Pacific as well. Um, there's the Pacific uh, Sexual and Gender Identity uh, Diversity Network, and we work closely with them and their country counterparts. Um, and we partner with them both in stable times and emergencies uh, and, and try and engage and ensure full participation of people who are of diverse orientation and identity uh, for example, in Tonga, we spoke earlier about the Tonga response. Our team that's mobilised there consists of, yes, nurses, midwives from our member association. They have a representative of the local Tonga Laities Association, which is a transgender network, who is joining the core team that will go out to communities. They also have a representative of one of the disability disabled people's organisations as part of the core team. So in those efforts to really engage with and ensure true participation of communities in all their diversity, we ensure that um, our teams represent those uh, communities as well. Now, the way you describe uh, how you work in emergencies is that you trim down the, the range of services you give to the absolute minimum. And I think, I think that is sort of the strategy we, we choose. We focus on the life-saving immediately and so on. And and, and then what's that like for you in a sort of an inter-cluster, inter-agency setting? Is there a general understanding of the importance of what you do or is it more like you guys will have to wait a little bit, we're too busy with the, 
with the truly life-saving stuff. Yes, well, we do get that attitude, and it is a it's a constant advocacy, even within the UN, to be honest, um, around this. Even though um, you know the Sphere guidelines, you know, kind of the Bible for the humanitarians recognizes um, it, sexual reproductive health as a life-saving action, humanitarian action, recognizes and, and names the importance of implementing the minimum initial service package for sexual reproductive health within 72 hours of um, a disaster occurring. Um, as a really um, obvious example I like to give is, okay, we agree food, water, shelter is life-saving, but so is sexual reproductive health. Women don't stop having babies just because there's been a cyclone or an earthquake or a disaster. Um, so, you know, and I think there was a, a really uh, powerful image that came out of uh, one of the disasters in the last few years we've responded to, which was in Mozambique, and it, it got quite a lot of coverage, this image, um, and it was a pregnant woman who had to give birth in a tree in Mozambique because of the um, the uh, flooding, the huge uh, cyclone that they uh, cyclone Idai, and there were no services, and she was trapped in the tree and went into labour. Um, and I've experienced being in teams where you've had uh, women go into labour when you've been on a boat that you're trying to evacuate them. So these things continue and women um, are particularly, at, women and girls are particularly at risk of uh, maternal health, of course, newborns are at risk, gender-based violence um, is increased during emergency times and post-emergency. So di daily life continues and that realisation or trying to help people understand sex does not stop during an emergency, pregnancy does not stop, birth does not stop. And this, these are all critical things and these are things that women ask for um, during an emergency. And they ask for menstrual hygiene support, so, you know, tampons, pads, etc., to deal with menstrual hygiene. They don't stop uh, menstruating during an emergency either. So these are all things that continue and need attention. Another thing I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview was climate change. How, how do you actually see the link between sexual reproductive health service and, and climate change, what I, I mean, I have to, I'm probably ex, sort of uh, exposing my ignorance now. But my, my first thing was like, okay, so I guess it's about having fewer kids, but maybe maybe that's not right, or maybe it, it is slightly more complicated than that. Please please enlighten me. <laughs> it is a lot more complicated than that, and um, certainly we don't promote contraception as a solution for climate crisis <laughs> because. Really what that does is it places the responsibility and the emphasis for tackling it on those who are least responsible for contributing to it. <laughs> um, you know, certainly climate, uh, climate change and the climate crisis it, um, is nowhere more evident than in the Pacific Islands and in some of our countries such as Kiribati in the Pacific Islands and Tuvalu in the uh, Pacific Islands. Um, and it, there was a, a fantastic image of recently at COP26 of the Tuvalu Prime Minister delivering an address um, to the COP26 leaders uh, standing waist deep in water because, with his podium because that's what's happening to Tuvalu. And that does have an impact on sexual reproductive health. It has an impact on the availability of water 
for example. So if you don't, if you have difficulty um, accessing water and clean water, that affects maternal health. That affects whether health services can operate. Um, it it has harmful effects um, due to you know for the young children as well. Uh, and safe water um, affects uh, safe pregnancy and childbirth. Really, the crisis, the climate crisis also has an impact in terms of the increased stresses it places on families in terms of whether they need to relocate um, whole villages or communities, whether it impacts on their ability to access uh, enough food or grow enough food, and that puts stresses which can create uh, an increase in gender-based violence. We've also seen in some contexts where that the communities have had to move and they've had to relocate to lands that may not belong to them, for example. They might have to change, move islands or move areas. And then to be able to stay on that area, they might there might be a, some forced marriages that occur to try and form alliances with, with the communities who own that land. Um, so we see an increase in child marriage that occurs. So... All of these sorts of um, pressures really do have harmful effects on sexual and reproductive health. Uh, I remember in Papua New Guinea they had a heat wave and a, a massive drought um, just a year or so ago caused by the, the growing, increasing uh, impacts from El Nino. And this meant that schools and health services across three provinces in the country closed so the entire province had no health services that were open because they had no water and people had no gardens that they their gardens all died so food became scarce so you can imagine the impact that that would have so there is definitely a link Lars with climate change yes and and so when you engage for example with COP26 what what do your what what are your advocacy points what do you what you actually push for Yes, well, of course, we're trying to push for, um, you know, the big countries to take action about this because, you know, in the countries that we're working in, people have little power to enact change. And, in fact, we live, um, and particularly in the Pacific, we work in some of the countries which are most affected. So we're, we're trying to make it really clear the impacts that this is having on people's lives. So the advocacy points are really about what climate-related disasters, the impact that's having on people. And also the from our, our perspective, and particularly mine working in humanitarian programs, we have increasing number and intensity of climate-related disasters, increasing number of floods, increasing number of droughts, um, increasing intensity of cyclones, and the impact that those things have on, on people in general and particularly on sexual reproductive health and the harmful effects that this has on maternal health and on communities. So there are our advocacy points that the consequences of inaction on climate change and what impact that's having globally, but particularly on community level and individual level and families, what it's having on families. So really trying to give a human face to those impacts, I guess. As we've spoken about a couple of times, uh, sexual reproductive health is something that it's, it's always with us. It, it's, it's not a development issue, it's not a humanitarian issue, it's a human issue. I mean, 
that is that's a need that's always there. How do, how does that? We also talk a lot about nexus in in the humanitarian sector. Now, what what is that for you? What how, what's your specific take on that? How how do you engage with that? The nexus, yes. What is this thing called nexus? <laughs> we often talk about what is this thing. <laughs> I think we say this. Um, a lot of people talk about it as the overlap between development and humanitarian programs, and in fact, sometimes they talk about development, humanitarian, and peace nexus. Um, but I, d- I don't see it as an overlap. I see it as a continuum. And for us, um, in a lot of the countries we work in, particularly in the Pacific, we are constantly moving between one and the other. So it- it's kind of a continuum of, um, you know, during stable times, we need to work on preparedness at the same time. And then an an event might occur that disrupts the system, so disrupts um, normal service delivery. That could be a flood, it could be a cyclone, it could be a volcanic eruption like we've seen in Tonga. And then that's when the crisis response needs to come into play. But as I said earlier, because we need to be prepared for those things, the development work needs to be tied in so closely with humanitarian work so that we can be prepared, but also so that we can recover effectively and build resilience. So, so what you're saying essentially is that you you work fairly seamlessly across the nexus with with your programming. That there's not a big tension between trying to integrate activities coming from a humanitarian box of money and uh, activities coming from development funding. Uh, I think. We are, we're optimistic and we and we aim for seamless. I don't know if that's we're quite there yet, Lars, but um, we are working on it. And I think we um, and we will continue to work on it, improve the that kind of work across that nexus. Um, it's not seamless. Uh, sometimes that's there is still some silos that occur, and I and sometimes that's because of the way that we're funded and the donor funding. Um, but it's it's really about integrating humanitarian work into all the work that we do and, and continual programs because we don't know when stable times might be disrupted by natural disasters or man-made disasters or conflict. So preparedness needs to be a, a continuous effort, I think. Um, but certainly our advantage, as I said, is because our member associations are local um, and they're uniquely positioned because they are b- there before, during and after a desert- disaster. So that ability to be engaged throughout the humanitarian and development continuum is very strong. Um, sometimes it's it's challenging at country level, though, too, because there are silos at country level. And, of course, um, I'm sure you're aware on the international level there's silos. So you have dash, national disaster coordination mechanisms, which might be completely different groups from the stable times kind of um, representations or groups that occur. So you might, in a disaster, you have the cluster system or, or equivalent at national level and national coordination uh, during stable times, there's often groups such as reproductive health committees or, um, you know, other committees that exist, but they're different than what happens during an emergency time. Yet in the smaller countries, they're often the same people. <laughs> so, um, you know, these trying to break down some of those things is really important, I think. 
where are we today in terms of the global opposition to your work? How, how does that feel? Are we moving forward? Where, where are the main stumbling blocks and what's the opposition you face? Yes, sadly, the um, global gla- gag rule that was in, reinstated under Trump really meant that any uh, no maternal health or sexual reproductive health programs could speak about abortion. And that means even if it was women seeking advice about their pregnancy, even if it was women who'd had an unsafe abortion, getting care for uh, the consequences of post-abortion care if they'd had an unsafe abortion, which is, as you know, huge uh, throughout the world and and a a high causes many, many women's deaths throughout the world. So any organisation that could that did anything to support women around that um, would be defunded. So um, they had to sign a global gag, a gag rule, um, which meant that they would not mention the A word uh, um, at all or provide any form of support um, to any women, even if they were uh, post-unsafe abortion and needed care for that. Uh, If you did not sign that gag rule, then you would be defunded. So, of course, IPPF did not, as a federation, did not sign that gag rule because signing that is signing the death of women, really, and it's totally against what we believe in, um, which is supporting women's rights. And so because of that, we lost about $100 funding for evidence-based programs that provide comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services for millions of women, men and young people. Many of those who went without services um, and, you know, it probably meant the um, huge amount of negative consequences on women and girls, young people globally. In Africa, there were 31 uh, member associations affected in South Asia, there were five affected in the Western Hemisphere region, region uh, Caribbean and the US-affiliated area. There were nine impacted. Lots of projects closed. Um, access to sexual reproductive health reduced significantly during that time. So um, now under the new administration, the Biden-Harris administration, we're really working hard to undo the horrendous damage that was caused by that global gag rule over the past four years. So um, we've repealed it, of course, but it's only a long, it's really a long, a step on a long journey to recover and and re-establish our relationship with the new administration and trying to work towards getting those essential health services back up and running and trying to repair some of that damage. So we're also trying to keep our consistent pressure to make sure that the global gag rule can not be weaponized in by future administrations to harm the rights of women and girls and people everywhere and to try and permanently repeal that um, because really it is a blow to to women's rights and and to women generally and undermines their health yeah it's criminal and and it's hard to understand how anybody can come up with a policy like that Apart from that risk which is there that you may have an administration come in again and because of, of the, the, the size of the funding from the states 
of course, this has a big impact. Where, where else is the opposition coming from? It, it depends. It, it's really, there are some oppositions from, you know, some religious groups around some of the work that we do, of course, uh, because we do support women's right to choose and to enable um, access to safe abortion care. Um, we are trying to combat the huge amount of unsafe abortion that is occurs throughout the world. There are some countries for whom, you know, unsafe abortions, women accessing unsafe abortions is the leading cause of death of adult women in their countries. And so um, we see it critical to enable access to free, um, easily accessible contraception and also uh, safe abortion for women to maintain their health. So, you know, there are some religious groups which uh, oppose that. Um, there are some administrations um, in some governments in some countries who oppose that approach because generally because of religious reasons. Uh, so, you know, it's a whole, it's a range of things. There's nothing as pervasive, though, as what occurred under the global gag rule but you know country by country there are certain oppositions that we face and um, need to address uh, specific to that context. Now looking forward what, what, what's the agenda for the next five ten years what, what, what's what are you pushing for where, where are you trying to to improve the situation of the populations you serve? I think to continue with our um, efforts to try and ensure um, accessible, um, affordable and appropriate, um, ac ac you know, access to sexual reproductive health for everyone, um, particularly those who are most marginalising communities. So um, ensuring that um, people who are of diverse gender identity and sexual orientation have access to the sort of um, sexual reproductive health support that they need because we are certainly not there yet um, and that they are able to access care without discrimination and that they have the equal access that everyone does. Uh, also the work for sexual reproductive health for people with disabilities. Um, people with disabilities make up uh, up to 10% of our populations. It's potentially more in some countries. Many, many, many of them globally do not have the same access to sexual reproductive health care and they and sexual reproductive health and sexuality is highly stigmatized often for people with disabilities um, yet they have the same sexual rights as we all do the and reproductive rights um, but enabling them access firstly to education around those rights enabling them access uh, to contraception to uh, other sexual reproductive health care um, to safe sex products, etc. It's you know it, that is really critical to ensure that that um, remains. We're also at a really interesting point in um, history in that we have an aging population. So there are particular needs that an aging population has. So we in IPPF we try and take a life cycle approach and. Um, in that, you know, there are particular needs that young people have and, and adolescents and, and pre-adolescents have around sexual reproductive health and rights, but there are also ones that older people have as well and people who are going through 
menopause, who are ageing, who might have um, developed some sort of cancers, prostate cancers, um, cervical, etc. So we need to look that that ageing population in some countries, um, and I'm thinking of uh, countries such as Japan, for example, but on the flip side, we have countries that have huge young populations in the Pacific, for example, in Solomon Islands, we have a mostly youthful population. So we, you know, we need to take that hot life cycle approach. So ensuring the needs are met. So I think some of those marginalised um, populations um, as well as uh, the different needs that people have throughout the life cycle of sexual reproductive health. And one thing that's not going away, sadly, is um, humanitarian context. Our work will remain really, really critical because we are seeing more frequent, higher intensity, range, a whole range of um, disasters that are occurring and certainly the the amount of conflict and protracted crises that we see um, that that has not decreased and we've only seen increases um, in that respect so um, ensuring that people who might be displaced um, within their own countries or might be refugees or migrants ensuring that they can also access the care that they need. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a very positive note to end on, but I think it's actually the right note to end on. I think we are facing, in particular, as you say, in the Pacific, a very difficult time because of, of climate change. As we've spoken about uh, in this conversation, sexual reproductive health is, is it's a right. It's something that is always a need, no matter what the, the situation we're in. And I just want to say thank you for, for coming on the show. Thank you for the work you do. And all of the best of luck with, with, with your work uh, going forward. Thank you very much, Lars. And just a shout out to our Tonga um, member association who are on the ground starting to serve um, the women and girls in Tonga right now. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>